Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. Public education has been under recent attack. The founders of the nation saw education as the key to a democratic society. But now, education has moved from that ideal with efforts to push responsibility away from government to vouchers and private charter schools. But don't blame Betsy DeVos. She is only just part of a larger movement that for decades has been amassing funds and honing their message and crafting policies. How did we get here? Can this trend be reversed? There is a wolf at the schoolhouse door. Let's discuss. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our podcast, Greg and uh, Dr. Berkshire. Glad to have you. I'm excited about our, our conversation today. Thanks and, for having me. And, uh, you know, in, in most, of the, most of the podcasts that Greg and I have done, it has been in his wheelhouse because he's kind of an expert on unions and organizations. And, and this is a chance for us to do a podcast in my wheelhouse. <laughs> which is in the field of education. And um, I, I finished your new book, which we can chat about. Um, and am I mistaken in seeing that you have two copies there? Well, you are. This is pretty exciting for me. I, I'll tell you why I have two copies. There's a story behind that. I Anytime there's a new superintendent. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah, so you... you you always. I've got mine here too. So you, we're up to four. You I always. On, I put it on your bail, though, Jennifer. You you owe us a cup of coffee next time you see him. Well, we we uh, I have a, a tr tradition of giving superintendents uh, books when they become superintendents. The uh, the one that was before in Tacoma, I gave her uh, the uh, uh, the reign of um, reign uh, of error. Reign of error. And we have a new superintendent that was just announced. He's very progressive. He's a very smart fellow, and has uh, and I, I have I have a lot of confidence he's going to do a good good job. And I wanted to give him a copy of the book uh, with a little note saying, "Listen to the podcast too." So oh, that's, that's so great! I really appreciate it. That's that's my my tradition of giving books to superintendents. So so let me just give a little background to everybody about who we're talking with. Um, you know, Jennifer, you are a very uh, good uh, podcaster that I've been listening to your podcast with Jack Snyder for, for years and shared so many copies of, of it to different people in my field. And you are a journalist and uh, you write for a variety of, what do you write for? The Nation? Um, mm -hmm. I'm a freelancer, so anyone who will take me, but I, I tend to, I, I, my, because of my interest in the intersection of education and politics, I tend to be more interested in left publications. Okay. And you write well because you have a PhD in literature. <laughs> I'm not sure that those two necessarily go hand in hand, but well, I do have a PhD in English. Okay. So Anyway, and I am so excited about your your book with Jack Snyder. I've read Jack Snyder's book on the measurement, uh, and that that's you know something that's a, a must for anybody that's in the field of um, educational research. And this book is just so important um, because it is coming at a time when we're seeing political change, and it's called the Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, and maybe explain a little bit about how you arrived at this this topic and give it a little overview of what of, of the book well jack and i have been working together now for a number of years and we really come at our work from different perspectives he's an education historian and so what i love about working with him is that whenever a new uh quote unquote new trend pops up i can always ask him and say um, have we been through this before? And the answer for in terms of education his, history is almost always yes. And it's really jarring to go back and, and see how we just relive history again and again. And so we combined that interest. Um, I think both of us were very interested in what was going on with when Betsy DeVos 
became the Secretary of Education, and what seemed like a very extreme point of view was suddenly the, you know, kind of like, you know, she had the power of the bully pulpit. Um, she was not new to me because I come from the Midwest. I'm from Illinois, and she's from Michigan, and I have spent a lot of time traveling through Wisconsin and Michigan and got very interested in how after the 2010 wave elections where Republicans really swept into into office, it was really, you know, a, some of the first signs of the Trump rebellion mm -hmm. that we saw. I was fascinated by how much of that backlash focused on education policy. Mm -hmm. And yet, so often the coverage of the policy, whether it was Act 10 in Wisconsin that, that really tried to to uh, wipe out public sector unions there, or deep cuts to school spending, um, all kinds of expansions to school choice, too often these were written about or, or chronicled in ways that were really separate from the politics of what was happening. And so my goal is always to connect them. So Jack and I kind of merged all these interests together. And at a certain point he said, you know, we should write a book about what's happening. And I think he his hope was really to influence the election, whereas I had a much bigger hope, which would be that, that people would sort of wake up and see that you know, not only have we seen these same education policies rolled out again and again, but that they're really deeply political, and and so I, I wanted teachers to see that, but also people who are living through these changes and maybe don't think that education policy is something they should pay attention to. So wake up, pay attention to it. Right. There's a wolf at the door, but the, the, the wolf isn't Betsy DeVos. I, I think you, you did a good job in that book of saying it's the, well, you started, I think, talking about a dark money, Jane Mayer and democracy in chains and how there are this group of people that have been systematically, progressively marching along, dismantling our institutions. And, and the, you know, the big one is education. <laughs> And that—that's, you know, it just amazes me uh, how effective they are and how no one is talking about them. And that's what your why your book is, I think, so important. That so one of the things that's really kind of driven me crazy over the last few years is that there have been you know, there have been all these fantastic books like Jane Mayer's book Dark Money. Um, and uh, Nancy McLean's book, Democracy in Chains. And so I think people are very aware now that, that conservative plutocrats play an outsized role in this country in shaping our politics, right? That their, their uh, influence in the electoral system determines who gets elected and, and how we talk about politics, what kinds of policies are acceptable. But the issue of public education almost never comes up. And, and when you think about the fact that, that public education is the sort of top dollar item in every state, of course that's what their focus is going to be on. And so if you travel through the heartland, for example, you'll quickly learn that all of these states has its own billionaire. Um, and so in, you know, in, in Wisconsin, uh, there's, you know, there's a handful of billionaires who for generations now have set their sights on trying to get rid of public education. They loathe it because it's our most socialist institution. It takes money from the rich. It redistributes, redistributes to the to uh, poorer people, and they hate that. And so, of course, they're going to be focused on it. And so one of our big goals was to really get people thinking about why public education is such a juicy target and to put it in, you know, start to think about it, that when they're, you know, when they're critical of the Koch brothers, for example, recognize that the, the Kochs who are now down to one brother, that their top agenda item all this time, you know, it's not just uh, lifting regulation on, you know, the amount of stuff they can belch out into the air, right, through their, uh, through their chemical companies and, and all of their various extractive industries. It's, it's education, and they are so busy right now, um, thanks to the opening that the pandemic has given them. What, how much of this started with Brown and race? 
So I think that's where Nancy McLean's book is so valuable. And I really encourage people to read it if they hadn't, haven't. There's this amazing scene in the book where uh, James Buchanan, who is really kind of the libertarian economist who um, kind of their, you know, original thought leader who would go on to win a Nobel Prize. He he realizes early on that the, you know, that while they're very excited that Virginia has basically shut down its public schools in order to ha avoid having to comply with the, the integration order that's handed down by the Supreme Court, they realize that the that using race to justify that um, isn't going to do it. That it's it's turning too many people off around the country. Right? They need a, a different way to talk about it, and so you see them very kind of you know like almost overnight pivot to the language of the market. To they start to use all of the same language that we're so familiar with today. That schools need autonomy. That parents need the ability to choose the right school that that fits their child. That you know parents will be the best regulator, and and it's really kind of it's really kind of shocking to see that this this moment that now appears to us so abhorrent that this is really where this language of the marketplace emerges and that now we're so we're so used to. So yes, I I absolutely recommend that people go back and revisit that history. There's some great writers. Um, Steve Suits has a book uh, on After Brown and John Hale, who's a historian who's now at the University of Illinois, who'd be a great guest for your podcast, has a book that's going to be coming out later this spring um, about school choice. And it's, you know, really, really uh, complicated. I'll use that word, complicated legacy with regard to, to skirting that original Brown decision. So it was raised, but they shifted it to be libertarian features of which the Koch brothers, you know, this is in their bailiwick, but it, it's still race, isn't it? Well, it's 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 all of those things. It's it's the you know the fact that you have the libertarians seeing early on like ah, here's the thing we've been waiting for, right? We're excited about Virginia closing its school down because we our goal is to dramatically slash the bur the tax burden on the wealthiest among us, right? And so if racial outrage enables us to get there. That's great. And so you see that legacy playing out again and again. And so, for example, when I would travel through Michigan, um, the DeVosses overlap with the Cokes in that they, they share a goal of reducing the tax burden on the wealthy. Right. They're more in the uh, they're more in the religious wing of this oddball coalition um, that has, you know, has really been with us since the 70s um, that that you see fairly early on you see the libertarians and the kind of fundamentalist christians aligning behind this goal of dismantling public education but they you know they're they're happy to work together and so what i would i would see again and again when i traveled through michigan was how the how effectively the right kind of poked and prodded and stirred those flames. I'm using many different metaphors here, um, like kind of um, uh, stirred racial resentment in order to move, you know, ever closer towards that goal of, of dismantling public education, right? Like, like, uh, you, like, we don't want to keep you. You shouldn't let all, them just waste your tax dollars on those Detroit kids. But then really what would happen was that the policy would come back to harm the rural voters. Right. Because, the frankly, the DeVosses see all the tax money spent on public education as a waste um, unless it's being funneled into some kind of private edupreneurial, as we call it, enterprise. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that. I did did this is is this just a, um, a a basic structural problem of taxes and how funds how schools are funded you know i uh, remember jonathan kozal's book um, savage inequities that was one of the first book that radicalized me a little bit yeah. uh, my dad's in that book no <laughs> oh really uh-huh 
Yeah, when um, so I grew up in Illinois, and my father was always kind of like the liberal do-gooder who worked in a moderate Republican administration. And one of the things that he was uh, responsible for was East St. Louis redevelopment. And East St. Louis is actually in Illinois, which a lot right, of people don't right. know. And so at a certain point, he had to take Jonathan Kozel to East St. Louis so they could talk about savage inequalities there. I'll be doggone. So if you look in that index, if it's on your bookshelf. I'm, I'm looking at it. What's his look, name? Berkshire. Uh, I don't see it. I think it's in there. Tom Berkshire. Tom yeah. Berkshire. That's amazing. Well, he, uh, it, yeah. In fact, didn't he write about the uh, suburbs in Chicago? And that it, it was oh, Chicago. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So uh, let me change the subject a little bit, but I'm interested in this. You said you discovered your passion for storytelling while covering a series of bitter labor battles that racked her native Midwest in the 90s. Yeah, Tell me about now that. Now Greg's looking interesting. He's like, enough with this education talk. Yeah. yeah so, let's... yes. So, um, so in the 90s, I was, uh, I was writing my dissertation. And, um, and, but I, you know, I could not wait to be done with grad school. I knew that, you know, I, I wasn't interested in, in teaching undergrads and the idea that you just keep studying the same thing and writing about the same thing over and over again forever like that seemed very uninteresting to me and it just happened that that very close to where i lived there was a, a major um uh labor it, it was a lockout not a strike but um i don't know if you guys remember the the staley lockout in the 90s. Sure. So this was in Decatur, Illinois. And what happened was that Staley was a soybean processing company and it, it turned soybeans and their various parts um, into sugar, refined sugar. And so it was purchased by uh, um, a global conglomerate called Tate & Lyle. And they went to war with that union and they implemented what what are known as rotating shifts so if you were a worker there you you went from having a regular schedule to working 12 hours during the day and then suddenly 12 hours at night and so the you know the workers were they really felt like their way of life was was under attack and so I started going and I had a radio show on the community radio station in Champaign Illinois W I L L no W E F T Oh, I grew up in Rantoul and went to college in Eastern. I went to Eastern. Oh, I went God. to the University of Illinois. You guys went to a lesser good state We school. did. We and did go to a lesser. You probably didn't qualify for the big school. For... Yeah, well, and, you yeah. know what? Eastern was the cheapest school in the state. So yeah. I went to Eastern and my sister went to Southern. I Those were 30, our choices. $33 a quarter to go to Eastern, so... Yeah, Greg's yeah. Greg's background, his superpower is he's a philosophy. He went to philosophy and started his doctorate, went to um, um, he, Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, and I, got to Pittsburgh. I guess but we I could all. My, my, uh, my uncle was a coal miner. He raised me um, around Danville. That uh -huh. war was a coal mining area until 1947. Uh -huh. so he was a coal miner, and uh, uh, my whole family was. And there's a General Motors uh, foundry in Tilton, which is in the Danville area, which is a big deal. And uh, yeah, I know that area. I wanted to ask you uh, a question, uh, uh -huh. just to run back. Uh, I'm not giving up on education at all. Back to Kozel. <laughs> Kozel was kind of a hero of mine when I was yeah. somewhat active in, in educational uh, issues, mainly around my kids. Um, I found that to be a very, very important book. And, and uh -huh. he wrote for New York Review of Books and all these other things. And he was like the person and what I drew from that period, I find it odd today, is that uh, that was essentially a uh, aggressive period where people wanted to improve the public school system. People had ideas about uh, racial balance, about integration, about funding. I mean, Kozel's whole thesis is that, look, there's, there's mm -hmm. insufficient funding for poor schools and there's oversufficient mm -hmm. funding for rich schools, and we have to equalize that. And uh, what I find interesting is I read your book. It's a wonderful book. I recommend it to everybody. However, it, it appears that today's struggle, because you outlined the struggle today very, very well, is a defensive one. Mm -hmm. It's trying to hang on to the public school system. And I'll just ask you a question because I think part of what I see as a problem today in these discussions is um, public education appears not very 
attractive to people. Blacks have been crapped on in the public school system. Ever since Milliken versus Bradley, they refused to really integrate the school systems. Right. So blacks have had schools in ghettos and they remain in ghettos. And uh, working class kids, same way. Mm -hmm. um, you have this enormous disparity in the educational system. The taxes are paid by working people. They're property taxes in general. I don't know everywhere, you'd know better than me, but I know here it's property taxes. And the rich get, they, they, they get their property taxes redone and the rest of us pay for the school system, the education system. So, I mean, my question would be, uh, have, we, have we gotten away from trying to fix the educational system to make it more attractive mm -hmm. to people because we're losing constituency for it. Mm -hmm. When I was at 86, 87, they created in a public school system here, a magnet program, which made the system elite. If you could, if you could stay all night in front of the schoolhouse, which we did because my wife and I were able to do this, but working mothers weren't able to do this. You would get your kids into the better schools. And virtually all the black and poor kids were put into a warehouse called Weisenstein School. And everybody accepted that. So why would you think that anybody would defend a public school system that in the last 30, 40 years has, has retreated from any kind of equality, retreated from any kind of, a, uh, you know, Oceanville, uh, Brown, Brown Oceanville, whatever it was, that 68, that's the same thing with the Shanker and the teachers. They, they were grabbing, grasping for something that could create equal, equal education, education that would be good for their children. And what an engagement with that. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And I think it's really important that you referenced, you know, Milliken versus Bradley. Like, we don't, when you go back and you look at the court's right turn in the 70s, I think we, you know, we're used to thinking that began in the 70s. We're, we have a long list of cases that, you know, we can identify on everything from workers' rights to campaign finance that, you know, very clearly leap out to us as like, oh, here's the, here's the real rightward shift that we see beginning in the Nixon era. Um, but those two, there were two uh, Supreme Court cases that were absolutely fundamental as far as really putting the brakes on any kind of systemic progress. And one is the one that you mentioned, Milliken versus Bradley, that basically, that foreclosed upon the possibility of wider integration. So I grew up in Springfield, Illinois, and I was in the first uh, group of, uh, uh, we were under court-ordered desegregation, and so when I uh, went to, into the fifth grade, we were bused across town um, to the east side of town, and our our uh, fellow students made the opposite trip. And I went, it wasn't until I moved to Boston as an adult that I realized that there was any kind of political fury over, over integration and busing. So when I went back and I looked at that, I was absolutely stunned by, you know, when I read the archives of the paper, how much bigger their sense of possibility was back then versus what we have today, right? That like my, uh, I'm getting ready to work on a podcast episode about integration. And I can't tell you how difficult it is to advance any kind of progressive policy because parents are absolutely convinced that there are only a certain number of slots for like, if you, you know, if you give up your opportunity slot to somebody else, right, then that means that young Greg isn't gonna make it to Stanford. He's not gonna make it to, you know, wherever it is, this, you know, the elite, uh, the elite spot that you're convinced that your whole future depends upon. And so when I go back and I, when I read like what the debate was in Springfield in the seventies, and really a lot of it was driven by the idea that people felt very strongly that kids should have friendships of different races. And I thought, you know, no one talks about anything like that anymore. So I think that part of what you're putting your finger on really is this sense of possibility that has been so limited. But there's another piece to it, and that is that our definition of what schools do has really changed for the worse. And so as the Democrats um, accelerating in the 90s under Clinton, right, as they get more and more wary of embracing any kind of policy that would require anybody to give anything up, right, we're not going to force you to put your kids on a bus. We saw the backlash that generated. Um, as, as the more they retreat from that, the more they settle on education as the thing that's going to fix everything. And so this has a couple of consequences, both of which are really bad. 
One is that it makes anyone without education or whose education doesn't translate into workplace like salary gains feel like a loser. It puts us on the corrosive path that we've ended up on today. But the other thing is that it just opens up the schools for enormous disappointment, right? They cannot possibly meet all of the demands that we heap upon them. And the more that education became the solution, the more it meant that we weren't gonna do any of these other things like raise taxes, like deal with, you know, with other kinds of poverty, or even even the sorts of zoning changes, right? That would, that would make cities less oppressive places to live. So I would say that I'm actually more hopeful right now than I have been for a long time because I hear the Democrats starting to talk differently. Um, they're not putting all their eggs in the education basket, right? Like who would think that, you know, like Biden comes in and they, they start talking about, well, you know what? We're gonna try to uh, minimize child poverty by helping their parents be less poor, right? That's a really novel idea. We have not heard anyone talk about that in decades. Instead, the idea was that you were gonna lift kids out of poverty by holding their teachers accountable for student test scores, right? That's a much different theory of change, as they call it. So I'm actually much more hopeful about that because I completely agree with you. If, we, if we're not able to get to a place where we can actually focus our attention on making schools places that people actually want to be in, our cause is lost. Well, let me disagree with you slightly, and, but in this, in this, this uh, conversation, um, I, I worked at a district of 30, under 30,000 kids with had had different uh, groups of um, you know high income and low income, and in the 60s they won the lamp ACLU Lamplighter Award for being the first urban school district to voluntarily desegregate. The hilltop area in Tacoma is like 90% uh, poverty, uh, almost all black. And they set up magnet schools, like you said, Greg, and, and all the teachers visited people in the summer and they successfully created this just absolutely wonderful program that desegregated the schools voluntarily. And you know who was pushing that were the white liberals on the north end of Tacoma in the nice houses that were the, you know, they were the ones that said, you can't be doing, they were the ones showing up at the school board meetings saying, you, this is wrong. You can't have this discrepancy. So that was then. What do we have now? Cory Booker, <laughs> uh, the Democratic Party, Bill, Bill Gates with his policies, race to the top with a Duncan. These are all the, you know, the, the kind of the liberal Democrats. And I, I, I agree with you that um, Biden has surprised me, you know, uh, really in a positive way. I, I don't agree with his mandating testing. That's, you know, that, but that's another story. Um, but how did the how did the Democrats become part of the problem in complicit in the dismantling that you are expressing in, in your book? Or do, you, or do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's really true. I think a lot of it gets back to what I was talking about this, you know, this sense, this generational shift in the Clinton era that they were that generation of Democrats were really tarred by the Reagan era backlash. And mm -hmm. so you see them, you see them shifting policies uh, in a whole, a whole bunch of areas, you know, labor would be one of the most profound ones, right? That like, we're basically, you know, we're, uh, we're going to break with big labor. Um, because that's, you know, employers are now sort of, they're, you know, ones who are, are setting the course. And I think we can look back at that and think like, wow, that, you know, that has not worked out at all. And one of the consequences is that, that, you know, the sorts of policies that you're talking about, the early on, this kind of voluntary uh, desegregation, you know, overall, that was not effective. That, that you end up with the kind of situation that Greg was talking about, where magnet schools, which are proposed as part of a broader, you know, package of desegregation policies, become really attractive 
to the parents who have the most means. And so as we get more and more unequal, you see the same story playing out in, you know, virtually in all these communities, which is that, that a magnet school, which is supposed to bridge divides, in fact becomes, you know, like dominated by the families who already have the most. And so I think that's why you start to see Democrats losing faith in those. Right. Those, um, would be, those would be the nice white parents. Yeah, the the nice white parents, and that this has only gotten more extreme, right? right that like right. that that uh, as long as the nice white parents feel like they have to give something up, their voluntary compliance is not going to be the way to solve a structural problem. But I would argue that the sorts of policies that have been put forward by the long list of people that you sort of rattled off there, the Bill Gateses, the Cory Bookers. Basically, what they do is they take a kind of neoliberal approach where, you know, we have schools compete against each other, um, parents vote with their feet. They take those sorts of policies and they put them on top of something that's already unequal. And so this is why they've proved to be so disappointing. Um, you look at a system that's that was held up by a model and now people are kind of saying, well, maybe not so much like a Denver. Right? right. So Denver was the brainchild of Michael Bennett, who ran for president in 2020. And the idea was, you know, that schools aren't going to improve on their own. And unless teachers are basically forced to uh, to help lift up the population of kids who need the most help, they won't do it. We'll have the situation that Greg's talking about, where students are just sort of warehoused. And so they... Denver goes with what's called a portfolio district. Treat your schools like you would a portfolio of stocks. Weed out the lowest performers. Reward the best performers by letting them expand. And so what happens? It's always the schools in the black neighborhoods that end up getting closed. This then becomes a source of enormous resentment. Um, the fact that, you know, that school quality is measured entirely on the basis of math and English test scores. And so now, you know, like uh, Denver is is rethinking that approach, spurred largely by backlash. So I think we are we're in this weird situation. Part of the reason I'm not um, 100 percent enthusiastic about the Biden people. Of course, there are a long list of things, foreign policy, the border. But just with regard to economics and education, um, I think it's very positive that the Biden people seem intent on confronting poverty directly. Yeah. But the challenge is that I don't think they know then how to talk about what schools are for. Like, are, is, are, is education still our economic policy? Are, is, you know, what you earn still based on what you learn? Or do schools mean something else? Right now, if you listen to them, they have no idea. They, they talk about standardized testing. Mostly they're just saying we're going to throw a whole bunch of money at schools, but they don't really have anything else to say. And this is concerning. Well, that goes to, yeah. you recommended the book School, is it Schoolhouse Burning? or school? Yes, by Derek Black. I read that. Uh -huh. uh, what a wonderful historian. I, I That was just a treat. It, it, it reminded me a little bit of the pioneers by David McCulloch, who, who mm -hmm. talked about the expansion of the... Um, um, Ohio, Indiana, Northwest Territories. And in that expansion, they had three things that they said. One, freedom of religion. No, you know, all religions, no, you know, can get along with each other. Um, no slavery. We're not going to be slave. But the most important thing is public education. Isn't that amazing? That they, every, that from K through college, free public education because they so remarkably felt that this democracy wouldn't work without a educated workforce. And all of the, in, in, in the book, uh, Schoolhouse Burning, he does such a good job of showing how all of these states had paramount duty yeah. of education. I know, it's amazing. And where, what, what happened? And not just, you know, to me, even like having read his book and knowing some of the history, going back and realizing that, you know, like it's not just K-12, but K through college. It's right. right. It's in the Indiana Constitution. And another book that I would really recommend is Mike Consol's book, Beyond the Market. And Greg, okay. I think you'll really like this one, too. 
and he you know he just he goes back and revisits key parts of american history and key policy areas education healthcare and various ways that people have tried to come up with alternatives to the market and you know like how how deeply that resistance is woven through the american story and part of what so confounds me about our present moment is that you really feel this collective exhaustion with the marketization of everything that even on the right, like when you hear somebody like a Josh Hawley railing against Walmart, you know, however phony it would, it is, he knows that his constituents do feel like Walmart hollowed out their towns, right? And so, but there's one area where we're going full speed ahead with marketization and that's K-12 education that there, the real pressure at the state level, especially in states where Republicans made big gains in 2020, is to you know remove as much oversight as possible and to offer provide K-12 education through an unregulated marketplace. And I, you know, I find these these two trends happening in parallel, like really just impossible to reconcile. Yeah. You know, uh, your point about poverty, I think, is well taken, and that's that's the essential thing. And that was the problem with Brown versus Board of Education, that it put the onus on the children rather exactly. than dealing with the actual neighborhoods, mm -hmm. the actual housing patterns, economic disparities. They didn't have the guts to do that, frankly. And so then it all fell in the back of the kids, and we paid a heavy price. And then right. Millican versus Bradley, we foreclosed the ability to we, we shut the door on equality because you had to meld the suburbs with the cities to make that work. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean? It means you have to lay much of the blame in urban areas, in particular in the North, at the hands of the politicians. And they're virtually all Democratic Party politicians. They did nothing just as they've done nothing about the police. I mean, you think about who controls the police, the mayors of all the big cities, and yet they do nothing to change that, uh, that situation at all. But back to, to education. Much of, in my view, and I, I'm not a historian, uh, uh, but in my view, much of the move to a public education, compulsory uh, public education was driven by immigration and by industrialization in this country. Uh, and maybe I'm not right, but if I'm right, and compulsory education in that late 19th century into the 20th century period was largely driven by that and eventually paid for by most of us, never was paid for by the, uh, the corporate uh, leaders. They should have paid for it as education for their, their industries, but they didn't pay for it, we did. But if I'm right, we're up against the real problem here because the deindustrialization of the United States since the 70s means that corporately there's no drive, there's no impetus, there's no uh, desire to have a public education system. It doesn't benefit US corporations. It's not just the conservatives, not just the Democrats, it's really capitalism that really uh, doesn't benefit from public education. So they've kind of written it off. If it's not STEM, and if you can't get through the, the situation because you're somehow an elite in a college, forget about it. Yeah. That, um, you're reminding me of an interview that I did a couple years ago with political economist Gordon Lafer. Do you know him? I've heard um, the name. Yeah, so I know I'm just recommending guest after guest and right, book after okay. book. But so Gordon wrote a book called The One Percent Solution. Oh, and he yes. he was working on Capitol Hill after the twenty ten wave elections and he uh, he started tracking all of the bills that were, you know, like rapidly uh, passing in all these state houses and and he really like he he really focused on Alec in a, the American legislation legislative exchange commission in a substantive way people throw the name around a lot and I think it just sort of they use it to represent corporate conspiracy but Gordon really dug into what the corporate lobby was actually enacting and so there's a whole he's a whole chapter about education and one of my questions for him was, you know, at a certain point, isn't this self-defeating? Like, why, why would, what is the logic behind corporations divesting from public education? And his answer was so bleak that I continue to think about it today. And he said, basically, that, that they know, the people who really run this country know that we are a nation in decline. That is not going to change. And so they're 
Uh, their goal is to manage decline without setting off a social explosion, to basically allow things to get worse and worse, right, without people rising up. And education becomes a very powerful means of doing that because it's the most direct way in which you set people's expectations. And so their goal is to sort of set off a cascade of lowered expectations. Mm -hmm. And um, I'll send you a link to the podcast because it's it's really Thank good. And and his argument was just basically that they're you know like most of those big corporations they're not even based here anymore. They're they're uh, the majority of their employees are in other countries, so they're um, they you know it's not, actually not as self defeating as you might think. So what I took issue with was that 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 may be true for the largest corporations but it's certainly not true for small businesses and so you can actually see sometimes in states that have gone the furthest down the school privatization route like in arizona that there is backlash from employers um, about divesting from public education same in texas Right. The reason Texas does not have private school vouchers is because they have a grocery store billionaire named Charles Butt, who happens to be very loyal to the idea of publicly funded public schools. Um, so I actually think this is going to be really interesting to watch, that you'll see the sorts of splits and fissures within the business community that could turn out to be important. But I agree with you, Greg. This, you know, things are not looking good. Right. You know, here, here's an Alex story. Back in 2000, I, I've got my dates wrong, uh, 14 <laughs> or so, there was this sw a group of bills going across the country. It was the third grade of... Reading retention. Yes. 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 So as the director of, of evaluation, we are expected to, to give a third grade test and that third grade test would determine if you you would automatically retain the child. Mm -hmm. And if the child, and you had to have conferences with parents, and then the parents had to sign off that you're not retaining the child. Mm -hmm. And the when I looked at the bill, it was boilerplate. It mm -hmm. was a boilerplate bill. It mm -hmm. passed. Mm -hmm. And that meant that you normally were giving your, your spring tests, but the test results wouldn't come back in time to have the results. So you had to give an extra test. And then when you're looking at the number of parents and the number of teachers, you're looking at weeks and weeks of teacher time meeting mm -hmm. with parents. It was, it was horrible. Mm -hmm. And it just, it just kind of went through the subcommittees and passed and it, it and it was a, a remarkably harmful bill and then finally got tweaked and changed. But Holy cow, that ha that's happening all over with Alec, isn't it? Yes, yeah, so um, you, uh, I know you listened to my New Hampshire podcast, and that was actually one of the themes, that it's not just that you see this intense push for school privatization right now, it's the level of policy intrusion, and third grade, the third grade reading retention law would be a perfect example. If you look at a state like Florida, what that law does is it, puts immense pressure on parents to leave those schools, right? Because they don't want their kids held back. The school has almost no flexibility as far as determining what's right for that individual kid. And so, you know, Florida now has a parallel system of publicly funded private schools and even calling them private schools, you know, you get this this image in your mind of, you know, like a Phillips Exeter. We're talking about like a school in a strip mall. <laughs> and they there's no regulation at all because the theory behind it is that parents are the best regulators, right? That the and so just, you know, this just this week, Florida expanded that private school voucher program yet again. Now the income threshold has been raised to $100,000. Right. Which if you know anything about Florida, that's you know, that's uh, that's a high income. And so the the idea is to I really think it's to make the in many ways, it's to make the public school as unappealing and as rigid as possible. And so the demand for these completely unregulated programs just continues to grow. Have, have you ever thought about writing scripts for horror movies? <laughs> 
you know, this I do. Is, I do have a lot of different side hustles. I could take that on. <laughs> That's on. I liked your chapter on uh, on teachers' unions. I thought it was very, very good. Oh, thank uh, you. I wrote that one. <laughs> well, you know, that 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 says something, doesn't it? Uh huh. And uh, and I think uh, if I want to find an optimistic, I want to be optimistic about the future. I think it's going to come from teachers' unions. I I was really struck and and happy to see West Virginia, Los Angeles, uh, Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. These were really um, grassroots. I mean, they the union leadership was not so excited about fighting mm -hmm. going on right. strike, but the workers were, and these workers were educated. And they showed, they demonstrated that they had an investment in public education, not just their, their income, mm -hmm. not just their benefits, mm -hmm. not the, the perks. They wanted public education to be better. And it's, I think the, the template for that was probably the Chicago Federation mm -hmm. of Teachers, which has really been a great, mm -hmm. great source of leadership in this thing. So I, I find a lot to, uh, a, a lot of optimism in, in, in their, uh, their activities. We just need more of it. We need a lot more of it. So I have good news and bad news on that front. Which do you want first? <laughs> you choose <laughs> well so you mentioned oceanville uh i always get it mixed up the, the you brown, mentioned brown and oceanville something yes like yes um so the um uh, the there's been a split in this country between teachers unions and and particularly african-american parents but really parents of color that there's no conversation about unions that doesn't somehow come back to that sort of, you know, bitter battle over local control. One of the really interesting things that's happened during the pandemic is that, you know, teachers unions have been the loudest voices for a safe return to school. They're really like the only force that's demanding a more robust response to COVID period. And so one of the really interesting things you see is that despite the just immense kind of pundit pile on against teacher unions during the pandemic, um, uh, approval of teacher unions has actually risen during the pandemic among oh. parents of color. And that's because they really see them uh, as allies on this key so uh, safety issue. So imagine if we were to come out of this and, and we could see, you know, some, um, uh, some bridging of divides in the past. Now, the bad news is that in a lot of those states that I mentioned where Republicans made big gains in 2020, uh, their very top of their legislative agenda has been payback against those teachers who walked out in, in 2018. And so in places like West Virginia and Oklahoma and Arizona, they've really been intent on trying to ensure that that never happens again. What are, um, what are some examples of the legislation to the payback legislation? Um, so in West Virginia, they were really explicit. Like you were striking was already illegal, but they made it super duper illegal. And the and, you know, in in a lot of those states, the reason that the schools were closed down wasn't just because teachers walked out. It was because school administrators closed the schools. And so they made that now. Uh, illegal as well. And then just these sweeping expansions of private school choice. So West Virginia actually passed one of the biggest in the country. And so what that will do is that it will just give um, uh, a portion of state taxpayer education funds. In, in West Virginia, it's about $5,000. Um, to parents to spend on anything they want. But the idea is to shift funds away from the public schools um, to private schools and homeschooling. Um, and the, the really, I mean, it is pay, it's payback because the public schools are unionized. And so the most direct way they have of weakening the union and its ability to make demands, not just about schools, but about all sorts of things, right? Like the governor's priority in West Virginia is to eliminate the income tax. So if you can, if you can shrivel the number of union members, um, you you stand a much better chance of being able to get your radical agenda through. And so it's been really pretty, uh, kind of appalling to see just you know the these sweeping proposals just get jammed through or or uh, often there's there's you see you see them get enacted over really loud public opposition or the uh, the local press is now so anemic mm -hmm. that they barely even are able to 
to convey just how radical this stuff is. Well, our, our local press on educational matters, Seattle Times Ed Labs, is a grant funded by <laughs> yeah. Bill Gates. Right. You're and, all about solutions journalism. And Bill Gates is the reason why we have uh, charter schools in our state. I don't know mm -hmm. if you know the history, but we started with initiatives and it was three. It was two to one against. Right. And he kept spending money and spending money and bringing it up again and bringing it up again. And it finally, after five, I think five times, it passed like 51 to 49.9 percent. And he he spent uh, roughly $30 million buying people that would um, be paid to uh, get signatures for the initiatives. And, and being a statistician, I did a little research. So Bill Gates, depending on when you Google it, is worth $131 billion. And he spent $30 million. So to let's assume that I'm a millionaire just for purposes. How much would that, in, in a proportion, what would that be me spending? And it would be me spending about $228. So that's nothing. I mean, that's a fancy right, right. meal for a couple of his friends. That, and, that's, and that's what passed it. And, you know, it's the same thing with Bezos. He's, he's doing, a, he's buying a couple of preschool programs that, you know, are, you know, and, and this is wonderful. He gets great PR. It comes out to him buying two cups of coffee. I, I, I can't, I can't believe how our democracy has been so distorted by these billionaires. And and don't get me going on Gates with Common Core and Stack Ranking and the you know measuring effective teachers and videos in the classroom. I mean, he has been, in my opinion, a very destructive force in education do you are you getting any gates grants can you honestly talk about uh, that or i'm i am i can say i'm not getting any any grants from gates or Bezos. okay okay all right so you <laughs> am i correct or am i just being hysteronic no i mean i i follow the washington what happened in washington really closely and at one point i interviewed joanne barkin who's a, just a great writer and follower of the money about how you know just how relentless they were about going back again and again and then you can see their you know their theory of change right that like that you it's not just that you you manage to control the democratic process but you decide in advance you know what the metrics of success are and then you set up a whole ecosystem all the or all the organizations all the all the media outlets um, and you know, determining in advance that this experiment is going to be a, proclaimed a success, which I really don't get the sense in in Washington that that's been the case with the with with charter schools. That seems like uh, it it seems like they've run into trouble all along the way. Correct. Well, they have, and they limited the number of them, and they. But it's not just the charter schools; it's the it's the, the research that's being done. Right. I'm a member yeah. of the Washington Educational Research Association and who funds the research? Mm -hmm. It's Gates. All of these professors are, are sponsored by Gates. And what's the research? It's on how if you just uh, test the kids and right. figure right. out where the bad teachers are, you can purge yeah. them and that'll fix everything. The, and I know people that have, I've, I go to Gates office many times and had meetings there. They're wonderful, bright, people and they all look beautiful and they're, you know, they're just great. But if you talk to anybody who works in the organization that um, doesn't agree with the agenda, you're gone. You know, there, there's no, no room for uh, somebody to push back against the groupthink of this kind of singular vision of how he sees education. And, you know, it's not, it's not been a good story, you know, small why, school. Why would you think it wouldn't be that way? I mean, that's what rich people do. I mean, it's kind of like their MO. It's not, they, they dictate to people what, uh, what they want. If I'm going to pay your salary, you're going to do what I, I want you to do. That's the essence of, of uh, wealth and, uh, and inequality in this country. And I think for our social Democrats, in our case, the Democratic Party, to dig out of this hole, it's going to require... Uh, an address of inequality. It's just, it's growing by leaps and bounds. And I know, I know that in fact, the shrewdness of the strategy to create charter schools, the first charter school in Pittsburgh was given 
to the Urban League. I fought. I was the first speaker in uh, in, in the discussions around uh, the public discussions around um, the busing in the city. I spoke, uh, and the Urban League was right there, and they they led the charge on 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 allowing busing, fighting for school integration. As soon as that was over, they were given a charter for. Uh, for charter schools. They were given uh, the first charter in, in, in Western Pennsylvania. So, and of course, when you look at the charter schools in the area, they have really, a, they're really a, it's shrewd on their part. They're really appealing to black and poor people. The teachers are black, the students are black because they've got the crappy end of the stick when it comes to education. Yeah. Yeah. This has been kind of a bummer of I a know, podcast. I know, I was gonna say on that sunny this note. Is a, I'm really, <laughs> a little too early to do day drinking but it's a consideration <laughs> but uh anyway yeah that's 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 amazing maybe maybe you could just talk about one thing that's not in your book but was in your recent podcast mm -hmm. and you mentioned the pre-staters in new hampshire um and how that is i guess their the the theme of their involvement this kind of libertarian uh defund is is being uh, is kind of central to the theme of your the wolf that's at the mm -hmm. your 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 door. Tell tell me about about this. I was fat. I didn't knew nothing about yeah. that. But I was fascinated by it. So in the early two thousands, a small group of libertarians announced this really ambitious plan that they were going to move to New Hampshire in mass. They were going to recruit twenty thousand libertarians, and that the idea was going to that you know that uh, New Hampshire would become a libertarian utopia. And they picked it for a number of reasons. It's a low population state, but it also has all these sort of unusual very sort of democratic levers. So they have an enormous House of Representatives, more than 400 members, and all these very hyper-local uh, democratic processes. So if you live in a little New Hampshire town, you spend a lot of time voting on things. Like they even vote on teacher union contracts, the town does, right? And so there are all these ways you can get involved. And so this really proved to be a powerful draw. And so because New Hampshire, like all states, um, spends you know the the bulk of its uh, state um, funds on education, even though they they fund education poorly in New Hampshire, that quickly became the thing that the libertarians were seeking to defund. And um, uh, so I I got interested in this because I met a school board member, and he was trying to figure out like what is with these anti-tax activists in our town. Um, he lives in Sunapee, which is a like bucolic town, and they they led they've led this years long effort to keep the town from building a new and then repairing an elementary school. So I just got really interested in this, and I think you know I was uh, I was somebody who I'd heard about the Free State Project, and I thought it was kind of a joke, and it had been a while since I'd heard anything about it, so I assumed it had been a flop, and so. This year, now that uh, New Hampshire has a Republican trifecta in the, you know, they have the governor in both branches in the state legislature, and you see them pushing these incredibly radical proposals, state voucher, uh, private school vouchers being one of them. Um, but things like uh, they they just snuck a bill into the budget that will that bans teachers from discussing quote unquote divisive concepts. So that means you know racism or sexism. So, so much for live free or die. But um, it really did, it reminded me so much of what we're seeing in other states, how this, the Trump era really, really created an opening for all sorts of radical, fringy stuff that's been out there forever. And, and now, you know, like people are just, people are so worked up for so many different reasons that if you're, you know, you've got your ideological vision all ready to go, it's a great opportunity for you to just sort of, you know, like march ahead. So yeah. I feel like once again, I've, I've brought us down. Well, keep, keep <laughs> on that. So that's um, something. Jennifer, I, we've been about an hour and I just can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this. I, Likewise. I you know, I've been look, like, I have been so enjoying your podcast and shared it with so many people, you know, with, with the, and I feel like the awkward, nerdy ninth grader that just had a date with the valedictorian prom queen. You know, I just like, oh my gosh. Can you imagine? 
imagine. Uh, you know, so it, it has been like what a, been, what a high school that would be. That would be good. That'd be a good. That'd be a good high school. Eastern Illinois University. Yeah, that's right. If you paid attention when you were at University, it all so inadequate. Yeah, yeah. So that's good. So anyway, thank you, thank you so well, much. Thank I, you. I, I, I appreciate you. it. And, knowledge. and we will, we will, um, in the description notes, we'll link to your your oh, book. And I, this is a this is a must book study for a lot of my educators that are still in the trenches, and uh, it, it stimulates so many discussions that uh, I think are much needed right now. And you know, I think you said in the book uh, that you know there's a there's a wolf at the schoolhouse door, and what do you do when you see a wolf? You stand up and yeah. and act big, and you and you shout, and you you know make a ruckus. And I think you did a good job uh, making a ruckus. So well, thank you so much, and it was such a pleasure to meet both of you. Congrats on your new podcast. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm thank you. I'm I'm I just wrote a I'm writing a letter to Noam Chomsky so we'll see if that'll work oh, so we, I, we figure go big or go home so go big or go home thanks All you right. guys thank you